I'm Ben Horton. I'm Mariana Vieira, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm Ben Horton and I'm speaking to you today from the Chatham House Media Studio, a grey and carpeted space, literally carpeted, it's got carpet all over the walls. But it's very nice to be back here and not sat in my living room on Zoom. And even better to be joined today by my colleague Mariana Vieira. How are you doing, Mariana? I'm good, Ben. Um, How are you? Yeah, I am fine. Just thrilled to be back in the world. I have my appointment for my coronavirus vaccine, which is very exciting. Having had my two coronavirus vaccines, (laughs) I would like to say they're not that exciting, especially in the first two days, but it's good to see the enthusiasm. Oh, but honestly, I've been waiting for this moment, so (laughs) don't take it away from me now. I've got visions. And to be honest, the thing I'm most excited about is the sticker that you get given when you've had it. (laughs) That's, That's what it's all about for me. But very nice that the the rollout continues. I've never been gladder to be over 25. (laughs) But enough about my COVID vaccination. We have a fantastic episode for you lined up this week. We will be touching again on COVID, but in more serious circumstances. I begin with an interview with the Greek Minister for Digital Governance, Kyriakos Pirakakis. He joined me to speak about the approach that Greece has taken to the COVID-19 response, particularly in terms of how they've used digital tools and e-governance techniques to kind of help citizens adapt to the lockdown and the various challenges that that's created. And also his views on vaccine passports and various other elements of the recovery post-COVID-19. So it was an honour to be joined by Minister Piriakakis. Um, And then Mariana, who did you speak to? Well, I spoke to Dr. Kate Ferguson, who is the co-executive director and co-founder of the human rights NGO Protection Approaches. Protection Approaches coordinates the UK Atrocity Prevention Working Group. Okay, cool. So what does this working group actually do? It's a group of 25 organizations that are basically getting together and informing the UK's approach to identity-based violence. So it's one of those groups that gives their input, like it's a one of those initiatives from the government to give civil society a say or other organizations and external experts a say in what kind of policies the the government puts forward when it comes to atrocity prevention or what Kate calls the mass atrocities and identity-based violence, essentially. Sounds like incredibly important work. So what did you speak to Kate about? So Kate and I discussed her most recent book entitled Architectures of Violence, where we talked about the book's framework and key takeaways these being the need for consistency uh, in approaches to atrocity prevention. Uh, Kate's book has a really good example or case study based on the Yugoslav Wars, Mm. uh, which we then used to talk about the UK's approach to identity-based violence, which we then related to the recent UK Integrated Review. An Integrated Review, which, of course, you can find out a lot more about on a previous episode of Undercurrents from just a couple of months ago. Awesome. Well, let's have a listen. Okay, so now I'm delighted to be joined today all the way from Athens by Kyriakos Pierakakis. Minister Pierakakis is Minister for Digital Governance 
in the government of Greece. He's also a Greek computer and political scientist. He served as director of research at Dianiosis, an independent nonprofit think tank, and has produced an array of research papers focusing on economic growth and understanding political dynamics within Greece. Minister Pierakakis, thank you very much for joining us today. And I'm very much looking forward to this conversation about how digital tools and e-governance methodologies have contributed to Greece's COVID-19 response. Obviously, the pandemic has caused governments around the world to completely reassess how they approach modes of governance. And I wondered if you could just begin by telling us a bit about how your department has approached contributing to the pandemic response in Greece. In two words, I would say that the key words would be service design. What we tried to do was to use service design in Greece in order to eliminate a problem that we had been facing for quite a long time, high levels of bureaucracy, administrative burdens. So since July 2019, when this new government came in, we created a new organization, the Ministry of Digital Governance. Uh, We studied a lot prior to that, more than a year, I would say, prior to that, uh, good case studies, good examples of what we could emulate from uh, other governments. The UK was such an example, the the creation of the government digital service in the UK in 2011 uh, and the development of Gov.UK. And we understood that such a horizontal project, because governments are typically good at vertical projects, but not as good at horizontal projects. Digital is the classical horizontal project. They typically work well when the ownership of the project is by the prime minister or uh, the president, depending on the system, herself or himself. So in our case, we we deployed this new organization. Uh, We recruited. Uh, We found uh, good people from either the public or the private sector, the university system, or from abroad. We brought them here and uh, we started using this organization as a mechanism to eliminate red tape, as a mechanism to enable citizens to interact with the state better. We created Gov.gr, having been inspired by the UK case. We actually launched this in March 2020 during our first lockdown. We started by 501 services offered digitally, and now, a little bit more than a year later, we have more than 1,150 such services offered. Uh, The numbers speak for themselves. We have a mechanism to map digital transactions overall, either through login or through interoperability, uh, through our interoperability platform within the state. So if you just make a comparison between 2018, when we had 8.8 million digital transactions, and 2020, when we had 94 million digital transactions, a times 11 leap within two years, I think one can tell uh, the big leap that's taking place overall in the service that citizens are receiving from the Greek state. And this is foremost manifested, I would say, by our digital vaccination platform, which is uh, one of the best cases of deploying digital tools in, in our case in a manner which helps and enables citizens. Thank you very much. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about this digital vaccination platform? How does it work and, and what's the take up been so far? So we decided to, first of all, the Ministry of Digital Governance worked quite closely with the Ministry of Health in Greece, with uh, also with the Ministry of Citizen Protection and with the Greek army, which played a significant role in the logistics uh, exercise of the vaccines. So overall, we decided to design this system in a citizen-centric manner. So we reverse engineered it. We started from the mechanisms through which one could book their appointment, uh, their appointments for COVID since we started by the by two appointments uh, in the Pfizer vaccine, which was the first. So we deployed four channels of potentially booking your appointment, two digital, two physical. 
The first digital platform is the obvious one. You have a digital platform to book your uh, vaccination appointments. It looks similar in other countries. It looks similar to airline bookings to a certain extent, where you have to book uh, your arrival and your departure. And uh, this is quite clear how one could design it on the basis of the prioritization by the vaccination authority. The innovation was the second digital uh, channel. We have an e-prescription system in Greece. One can enroll in the e-prescription system, provide his or her mobile phone, their address, and receive um, uh, the prescription from their doctors on their mobile phone via SMS or via email. So we decided to instrumentalize the system. And what we said to citizens was the following. Should you be enrolled in the e-prescription system, you actually, you don't have to do anything else. We will reach out to you. And on the basis of the postal code that you will declare, we will propose the two appointments. You can either accept them, or if you're in another place in Greece, or the dates don't fit uh, your schedule, you can reschedule using the other three channels, the digital or the two physical. In the physical channels, though, because I think that in reality, and I've mentioned service design, but I think that in reality, this is what we should be speaking about rather than digital per se. Digital is the means, not the end. The end is designing good services for citizens and corporations. We needed channels for those who are not digitally skilled. So many other countries thought of using call centers. We understood from day one that call centers wouldn't work, especially as we started by the most elderly populations, because everybody would be calling the call center at T0 on the first moment that we would uh, turn on the vaccination platform for them. So we said, okay, we will not be using a call center, but we need physical channels. What we did there was that we used the pharmacy stores in Greece, which are 11,000, and they have an SME structure. They're all over the country, in any island, in any location of the country. So we have 11,000 pharmacy stores, and we have a bit more than 1,000 citizen service centers. So 12,000 locations in Greece where where one could visit uh, the specific locations and book the respective appointments as well. So we had the four-channel system. Of course, these were not the only digital systems uh, that we deployed in this platform. We also needed um, very well-deployed logistic systems in order to map and track the vaccination process in Greece overall. We needed systems for the tablets of those who vaccinate because we wanted to have a very good digital track of the of the service. And eventually, we ended up building an A to Z digital system for vaccinations, which has proven to be a success domestically. The vaccination appointments are very well organized to the minute, and uh, citizens are happy with the way they're being served by the state, with the additional, I would say, focus on an overall message that this is not only for the vaccination process itself. This is an overall message of how we want to transform the state, the services offered by the Greek state, and it's a message that it's feasible to do this in a country which has suffered from elevated levels of bureaucracy in the past. So this message, together with all those new services that I mentioned in Gov.gr, services that more or less touch upon the overall life events of citizens, from the birth of a child to the passing of a loved one, you have a spectrum of events, of life events. One can codify them in 100 or 300 or 1,000, but let's say we have 300 core events in the Pareto, according to the Pareto rule, 20% of activity, 20% of the processes can be 80% of the activity. So we have started by mapping those specific life events, simplify them, digitize them at the same time, and offer them through the, through the government platform. So those two things put together, Gov.gr as a new face of the state, 
uh, as a new interaction with the state. And the vaccination system itself have overall produced a very positive message vis-a-vis how our country is transforming itself using very simple digital tools. Absolutely. Thank you. This is an incredibly significant transformation that you're undergoing and that you describe here. I just wondered, since the ministry launched in in 2019, what challenges you have seen in actually rolling this out to the population? Have there been obstacles that you've had to overcome in terms of converting people to these new systems? I would say that obstacles obviously are being faced by all of us. Certain amongst these obstacles were removed because of the necessities of the pandemic. The pandemic acted as a digital accelerator because it rendered, in our case, what was missing, uh, what was asked for by the citizens, to something which was absolutely necessary. Because as businesses had to ensure business continuity, the Greek state, all states, had to ensure state continuity. So in this regard, we knew that we needed to take an already existing strategy, the strategy of simplifications, the strategy of digitization, the strategy of reducing administrative burdens, and also render this strategy a tool to battle the virus. Because as we are eliminating interactions or excess or unnecessary interactions, as we're eliminating processes, we're effectively eliminating interactions that can potentially be harmful vis-a-vis COVID. So this was a strategy of empowerment to begin with, and the strategy of empowerment continued during COVID. Obviously, the challenges are there. They also involve technical matters like the procurement processes. This is a challenge for digital globally. They involve how to attract talent in the public sector. Because if there is a delta, if there is an opportunity cost between the public and the private sector salaries, this opportunity cost is maximized in digital. And this is an issue for us because even though we're outsourcing significantly, we need significant capacity building within the public sector as well in order to track contracts in order to create certain services which need to be agile and deployed quickly. We have managed to resolve this issue so far or to handle it to a certain extent, but it's an overall challenge, I would say, for all our countries moving forward. And of course, there is an overall skills challenge which needs to be addressed, which has many facets. Uh, There is a skills challenge within the public sector, how to upskill people who already work uh, in our ministries, either with digital tools or with soft skills or with many types of skills, Uh, how to create tailored programs for those who don't possess uh, digital skills and they want to learn something quite simple in order to have access in these services. I would say that what we're trying to do there are effectively three things. The first one is that one needs to design digital services as simple as possible. They need to be extremely lean, extremely simple and accessible. And we have managed to achieve this to a certain extent, and this is visible for Greek citizens. If one makes a simple comparison between digital services offered now or digital services offered some years back, the the aesthetics are different, uh, the UX, the user experience is different. The second thing that one needs to do is that for every digital service offered, you need to have a physical channel offering the equivalent service, which also needs to be quite easy for citizens to navigate. This is exactly the case of the vaccines. This was the case study of what we tried to do there. We tried to do this for all services. But after some point, one needs to tailor targeted skills programs. Our first move there was to create what we call the National Digital Academy. It's a a website under the government portal where we did something quite simple. We aggregated material, more than 200 classes of material in digital, from something as simple as how to use a search engine to something more sophisticated as how to learn to code in Python. And we 
put forward, this content is advanced, by the way, by universities, by private companies. There are many types of content uh, producers who offer their content for free. And we have created our own self-diagnostic test, which involves a spectrum of questions. And depending on how you answer these questions, either on your pre-existing skills or in what you want to learn, uh, the questionnaire t- um, channels you to the specific class uh, that you should be taking. Of course, this is not a silver bullet, as we say. It's a, it's, it's a good step forward. But we plan to leverage the significant funding opportunities that we will have through the post-COVID EU reconstruction funds that will be available for us, which are significant vis-a-vis the implementation of our overall digital strategy. Certain amongst these funds will be channeled towards targeted skills programs, depending on the specific population groups that we want to target. And we believe that uh, this upskilling uh, exercise will be quite significant vis-a-vis moving forward because overall education is shifting towards targeted skills programs as both life expectancy is increasing and as technology is accelerating in its change, one will probably change many careers in her life or in his life. So the question will become, how can you tailor targeted programs on upskilling in order to enable and facilitate uh, this process? Thank you very much. I wanted to come back to what you mentioned earlier about learning from the digital sector in the corporate world. And one of the methodologies there that you mentioned about this kind of agile approach to things. In the business world, that comes hand in hand with projects failing as well as succeeding, and that that process of failing and learning is encouraged within that environment. I just wondered whether that's something that you've had to grapple with when translating these methodologies into the public sector, because obviously the consequences of failure for governments are much more significant than they are for an individual business. So how do you navigate that challenge? You're absolutely right. This is, this is a big challenge and this is a cultural challenge because one needs to make failure acceptable. In reality, one of the proposals that I have made to certain amongst my colleagues or in the EU institutions uh, or the OECD is to create conferences or networks, official or unofficial, where one could share one big success that's emulatable and one failure that one can draw lessons from. In reality, what we are trying to do is that uh, this philosophical change is something that we're trying to navigate, as you said. I think this is the the right verb. We try to announce projects after they are ready and not before. I think that uh, this has helped us significantly gain credibility. We can work on a certain project for six months, for one year. I mean, for the for the tailored or for the smaller projects, rather than a very big procurement process, which can take years. But many projects, which are politically extremely significant, involve simple interoperabilities, involve simple platforms, simple applications, which one can develop, a state can develop within six months or a year. So what we're trying to do is, instead of saying, there's a Greek word, tha, which means we will, instead of using this word in our vocabulary, we try to use the another Greek word, na, which is showing something. Here it is. And uh, we try to announce projects the day that they are ready so that any press release is actually actionable. Thus, we can test everything to the maximal extent. Now, of course, there is the old Mike Tyson quote, right? Everybody has a plan until they get punched. So as one is testing a new platform, obviously, the platform shall be tested by real traffic conditions, by reality conditions. So we know that especially during the first day of launching a new new service, there will be challenges. 
But whether these challenges are small or large is what makes all the difference. Because if those challenges are small, one can resolve them within a day or within hours. And this makes the the project successful. There is an expectation. We have tried to integrate this expectation in our public discourse. We're saying that when we're launching a new platform, expect turbulence during the first hours of the platform or the first day, but expect excellence a couple of days later. Because we learn from you, your feedback, you trying to use, citizens trying to use the service, is the real user experience. It's a dialogue between us and you. But this depends also on our capability to address these challenges very quickly. And this is something that I'm really proud of the team that we have gathered in the ministry from the people who either work in the organizations supervised by the ministry or my close associates, that we have managed to navigate this quite well so far in very challenging conditions. As you know, the vaccination platforms had significant challenges in many countries. And in certain countries, they didn't even work. In our case, everything worked well uh, in day one, and this is for us a big accomplishment, I think. One further question I wanted to raise, which has been part of these discussions around technology platforms in particular in the, in the last few years, is this question of privacy and our right to not be watched by corporations or governments. I, I just wondered whether that's something that you have had to think about when you're communicating these changes that you're making how you're using citizens' data, how to persuade them that they're not constantly under a kind of surveillance in that way. Has that been something that you've had to address as part of the rollout of these tools? I would say that this is part of the core focus and the core strategy of this ministry and the way in which one communicates this strategy, the the key message, the key platforms that one is trying to deliver upon, pass this message along. I mentioned before that the key word for us was the word empowerment. I remember an op-ed written in the FT by Yuval Harari at the beginning of the first lockdown, where the fundamental message was that after a couple of years, the pandemic will be over. But what will remain are your digital choices as countries. So be be quite careful about these choices, whether uh, you will go towards uh, a strategy, let's say, of of surveillance in certain cases, or other strategic decisions. So in our case, we had a different strategy. We had a strategy of empowerment. For instance, we didn't focus so much on the contact tracing app. It was not something which we felt was the key strategy for the Greek government. The key strategy for the Greek government was GAF.gr, deploying a platform where we simplify, we digitize, and we eliminate reasons for you to visit a public service. This is also a tool to battle the virus. So the whole debate was framed in a way and deployed in a way which passed this message along to citizens, also having in mind that we have the challenge, and we still have to a large extent, smaller though, a challenge to resolve those elevated levels of bureaucracy, which were perennially problematic for us. So in our case, the path was and is quite clear. But vis-a-vis data protection, the EU overall is is a regulatory superpower. Uh, The general data protection regulation is enforced in Greece, and uh, it's at the core of every platform that we are deploying. It puts down the coordinates of how it should be deployed. And all the new regulatory initiatives taken by the the EU will and are taking into account in all our policy design. So I would say that the key message here is, what's your strategy about? In our case, our strategy wasn't this about citizen empowerment. I'm conscious of time, but I wanted to ask one final question about the future developments in the pandemic response, because, of course, COVID-19 is not a thing of the past yet, hopefully soon. But one debate that is emerging, I think, as part of the response is around this question of 
how to treat people who have been vaccinated versus people who haven't. And, and one solution to reopening that some are advocating is this uh, digitally enabled vaccine passports. And I just wondered if that's a tool that you're considering that the, the Greek government is considering and what your take is on, on this question of allowing people to travel or move about the country based on whether or not they're vaccinated. The digital uh, passport, as we say, was a proposal made by our prime minister in EU institutions, by Kyriakos Mitsotakis. So in our case, since we had an A to Z digital system to begin with, it was quite easy to issue a vaccination certificate at the end, and we have been doing it as a health certificate so far. But the EU has overall made the decision to deploy these vaccination passports with an obvious use case. The obvious use case is how to cross a border. So the question there became, because one needs to deploy public sector or or, or state capabilities optimally. So since one is vaccinated, or since one has already contracted the virus a couple of months back, or since one has had a PCR test, the question is how one could take advantage uh, of that status in order to pass uh, a fast lane. So the question became how one can use this vaccination uh, passport in the same manner one uses a fast lane at the airport. So that's the use case overall. But the the idea is that uh, for us, this is a digital mechanism, again, to facilitate travel, to reestablish travel, and uh, it's a facilitation tool. And you don't foresee any problems with that in terms of creating different tiers of citizenship, in a sense, you know, the, the, the fortunate ones who have been vaccinated versus the people who haven't? Or do you, do you see that that is just inevitable and that that is just part of this process of reopening? My claim would be that this is, again, since the General Data Protection Regulation is an EU-wide discussion and the specific technological development was an EU-wide uh, design which member states adopted, that for us this will be a European debate, the use cases. But the use case which was obvious and it was the one that we suggested, was the fast lane at the border. So the idea is that as increasing numbers of citizens are being vaccinated, and as this process is being rolled out, I'm hopeful that quite soon those uh, permutations and this uh, status that we have right now in the COVID-19 era uh, will be quite soon over. But the idea here is how one can use digital tools in order to facilitate citizens and make their lives easier. And the fast lane at borders, I think, is an obvious uh, such case. For all other developments, we're obviously in close contact with EU institutions to discuss them thoroughly and deploy them if necessary. Absolutely. Minister Pierakakis, thank you. This has been a very interesting conversation. I just have one more question, which is that you were recently appointed as the chair of the OECD's Global Strategy Group. Congratulations. I wanted to ask what your priorities are going to be as in this new role and whether you will be trying to translate the work that you've done in Greece on digital governance into that forum. The OECD is one of the most significant policy hubs in the world. And since member states of the OECD wish to learn best practices and exchange policy views and adopt similar initiatives, we view it as a forum to exchange these practices in the same manner in which I mentioned before, especially vis-a-vis digital, for instance. Of course, it's not all about digital. There are many priorities in the member states of the OECD, reform-wise. Digital is a very significant horizontal policy, a significant part of the equation, but it's not the only part of the equation. So in this regard, I would say that the core focus is this facilitation of both learning from, let's say, the best case studies available and learning from one another. We need to facilitate this interaction because to give you one example that 
we faced. We started uh, the process of developing our digital program a bit more than a year prior to our national election. And there we had to develop this eclectic point of view on what we would be emulating, let's say, from the UK case, which was gov.uk, or what we wanted to learn from the Estonians, their identity system, or other countries all over the world. And this is something that we had to do on our own. So in our own digital path, in our leapfrogging attempt, we spent a lot of time vis-a-vis how trying to locate the case studies which were relevant for us. Those reforms are a little bit like transplants. You need to have donor-receiver compatibility. So you need to assess these reforms on your institutional context, on your national context. If fora like the OECD can facilitate this process, they can accelerate it. They can make it easier for one country or another country to obtain a quite ready toolbox of things, a single government portal, a national identity system, a 5G auction, which is designed in a certain manner. So if one can facilitate this process and make it faster, I think that the added value overall for the global economy, the added value overall for citizen satisfaction will be significant. And this is one of the things that we really want to enable with uh, this new appointment for Greece. Minister Pierakakis, thank you very much. Uh, This has been a very fascinating conversation and I wish you luck with the rest of your program. Thank you so much. Now, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Kate Ferguson. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. So I thought we would begin with your most recent book, which was out last year, and it's entitled Architectures of Violence, The Command Structures of Modern Mass Atrocities. So in the book, you push back against certain elements within academic international relations over their interpretation of paramilitary independence from state authorities in the wars of the 1990s. What do you think they got wrong and how is this misunderstanding affecting international response to conflicts? That's a good meaty one to get us going. I start in the preface of the book citing Tim Judah, a journalist, and I I think it was a piece in The Times, where he wrote in 1992 really the height of the systematic and well-organized ethnic cleansing against Muslims in Bosnia, that there was a war being waged in that country by a kaleidoscope of militias. And he says that it was impossible to ascertain loyalties and command structures. And I think the quote is, who commands whom is a moot point. And I suppose my entire book, (laughs) Poor Tim Judah, is to push back against that. And it's not that that one piece was somehow detrimental or that one journalist somehow disproportionately shaped what happened in Bosnia. It's because this sense that when certain crimes are committed, when you have mass atrocity crimes deliberately targeting populations, and it is not immediately obvious that it is a hierarchical state armed structure, There was a sense in the 1990s that that somehow meant it was a new kind of violence. And therefore, it was something that we sort of didn't understand. And my book is about really deconstructing what I call these architectures of violence. So you can see, yes, who is on the ground committing atrocity crimes, but also who is commanding them, who is influencing them where the money comes from, their relationships with society and their relationship with organised crime, their relationship with hierarchies of state violence, so militaries. Because I think that in that, you're then able to 
determine the motivations of that violence. And from a preventative perspective, you're able to really understand what I think is is a much wider kind of spectrum of entry points for prevention, mitigation, protection than currently our understandings of violence when militia are involved, especially when militia are targeting um, civilians. And when I say militia, I mean I mean paramilitary groups, mercenaries, non-state actors, pseudo-state actors. It's a kind of messy realm unless you start detangling them and you really need to understand it. And in the 90s, I think that wasn't clear. And I think there was the sense of um, Mary Calder called them new actors. I don't think they are new actors. These kinds of armed people have been present in both conflict and atrocities since the very beginning. You mentioned in an interview two years ago that you felt, quote unquote, infuriated by your colleagues' unwillingness to compare the Syrian conflict to the atrocities of the 1990s. So what appropriate comparisons did you have in mind at the time? And has the field shifted in any way in this reticent approach since then? Yes. I mean, I think that frustration at what I perceived to be this sort of lack of energy in those early stages of the Syrian crisis to essentially be one of the motivating reasons that we set protection approaches up in the first place. And where that frustration really kind of came to a head was my co-executive director, co-founder Andy Fern and I were in Kigali in the national stadium for the 20th commemoration of the genocide. And we were sort of in this sort of VIP enclosure. And there you had all of the leaders of all corners of the world. And you also had former leaders. I I think Clinton was there. I I assume Tony Blair was. And Ban Ki-moon, who was then Secretary General, gave this very moving speech about remembering what happened in Rwanda and acknowledged that there was a tough time going on in Syria. And it, it was sort of almost too much to bear, really, because there were so many actors there that were so committed on paper to atrocity prevention or learning the lessons of Rwanda. And yet many of them were so conspicuously absent from Syria's crisis and pain. And I found that very difficult. And I was trying during that time in 2014 to bring Syria to the attention of a number of organizations working to prevent genocide and crimes against humanity. And I remember very clearly that one who you know, was a senior colleague said to me, well, we don't know who's committing the violence. It's too political and it's what they do there. And for me, I mean, to say this in Kigali, I found devastating because, of course, those were the things that, that were said about what happened in Rwanda, but it was also what was said about Bosnia. And this point of we don't know who's committing the violence really rang in my ears because that was the reason that I wrote the book too, was this sense of we don't know who's committing the violence. It's lazy. It always was lazy. But if in the 1990s it was hard to understand who was committing what violence now in 2021 with satellite imagery, with the internet, with such transnational immediate access, with people tweeting out as they are being killed, the the data and information and intelligence we have, it was never an acceptable excuse. But now I think for sure it isn't. And I found that deeply, deeply frustrating. And I think perhaps we have got a little better in recent years 
But 2014 isn't isn't that long ago. And I think that that failure and, and that misunderstanding of the atrocity dynamics of Syria early on was to the detriment of Syria. And I don't know if those lessons have sufficiently been learnt still, which is a bleak response, I'm afraid. But maybe that's why I, I champion the idea of sort of mapping out who's who, just so no one can ever say to me again, we don't know who's committing the violence. Could you please explore a bit of how you've come to develop this terminology and why do you find this framework advantageous for the readers and the book's audience? Yeah, absolutely. I'm such a fan of mapping in general is a tool of trying to understand where things come from and understand the logic. Mass atrocity crimes as opposed to other forms of, of violence, they are distinct and they have their own dynamics. And yet there is this sense in prevailing policy, particularly in the environments that I work in, that present atrocity crimes as being less rational and less politically motivated than armed conflict. And that simply has never been true. You know, genocide, ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity, these are political acts, very often committed against population groups with direct strategy, perhaps to divest them from their property, to remove them from land, for a number of reasons. Just as there are many political and, and rational, in quotation marks, reasons for armed conflict, And if you start dismantling or, or rather deconstructing who the people on the ground committing atrocities are, how they relate to one another, where their arms are coming from, where their political instruction are coming from, then in a sense, any bias or assumptions you might have about that situation can be dismantled because what you have is an evidence map. And that's very important, I think, when we're talking about really quite serious human rights violations like genocide or ethnic cleansing, because it allows the policymaker or the analyst to have a picture of the propellants of the violence, so that whether that is arms or political intent or geography, but also an understanding of how they might be able to use their influence, what's in their toolbox for prevention. And, and so to me, I think that network mapping, which is something that, you know, militaries use, for example, it's used often in the fight against violent extremism, is something that has been, at least in my experience, undervalued in the sphere of atrocity prevention. It, it's also a good tool for scenario planning, because if you can see the networks, then you can actually foresee what those interests are, or as situations evolve, how those interests might also change and adapt. So it's really just an analytical framework or way of thinking. And now you can do so much from desk research. You know, it's always good to have local intelligence, absolutely. And the closer you get to a crisis and the closer you get to violence, the more you need that intelligence as well. But many, many of these networks are now transnational. They exist online as well as on that local level. So I'm a big champion of this as the tool. And in a sense, while Most of the book is about what happened in former Yugoslavia. I hope it also serves as a kind of case study of how that tool can be used to really go from the high level analysis really to like some very detailed points of contact and relationship that are really sort of the context and fabric of atrocities, I think.
Yes, it's amazing. And one of the things that strikes me with the way that the book is framed is that the idea of network mapping comes across not just as one tool that you can add to the toolbox, but also a tool that can help you appraise your toolbox. So there's like this added benefit to it. I wonder if we could now shift a bit towards the work that you do with the UK government and through Protection Approaches, the UK NGO that you co-founded in 2014. So you have welcomed the UK's integrated review and its articulation of atrocity prevention as a strategic priority for UK foreign policy. Are you optimistic about the future of the UK's approach to conflict? Two-part answer to that. On the face of it, absolutely. What is set out in the outcomes of the Prime Minister's integrated review I think promises a really important conceptual and practical shift in how the UK government understands where modern conflict and very importantly modern atrocities come from. And so the first thing you know I'm I'm really pleased to see and have been pushing for for a long time is this new commitment to acknowledge the prevention of atrocities as part of the new strategic framework guiding UK foreign policy. That is a really big deal. The other thing that really matters, though, is that there is an articulation of the drivers of modern conflict and atrocities that I think was always missing in the UK approach to conflict. And so now the priority is on tackling political marginalisation, grievances and criminal economies. And essentially, those are the three things that that book is about. It's also the core of what preventing atrocities and on the flip side, building social resilience is all about you want to tackle marginalization, you want to challenge that kind of criminal economic component, and you need to disband those grievances that can be so powerfully manipulated in times of crisis. So this is really, really important. On the other side, though, I think there really is a worry about the conviction in following through from what is one page in the outcomes of the integrated review document, which is a page that you know I can talk about for a long time and I think holds a lot of good stuff in there, versus how that will actually be implemented. And there are really, really, I think, many reasons to be optimistic there. You know, we know that the government is thinking about important components like staffing and training and systems and processes and those are the questions that need to be answered. So I really do think that there is, there is some really solid engagement in implementation, but I would be really remiss, I think, to not point out the substantive policy decisions that have been made since the publication of that outcomes document in March that really undermine that commitment, you know, that the, the cuts of funding to fragile and conflict and atrocity-affected states. The persistence in creating a hostile environment here in the UK to those that are fleeing the very atrocities that the UK is seeking to respond to and to prevent. And what some people might describe as a sort of increasingly cavalier attitude towards international law. And I think that those are reasons for me to be a little bit cautious. But I I think that what is set out, that framework, that pathway, holds a greater opportunity to kind of leave behind an era of what was a very disconnected approach to conflict and atrocities. And for that, I I look forward to working with the government on as as long as it will take, really. So you've mentioned the two components of my next question, one of them being the cuts to funding and the other one being the UK response. So it strikes me that 
even within the UK's integrated review, identifying and understanding conflict drivers is really only one part of the equation. Uh, in the context of competing priorities and the budget cuts that you've mentioned, how does the UK government decide which crises require a UK response and which ones don't? And uh, in your view, is there any room for improvement? I think it's far less about this approach of selectivity. I think that has really been the mistake, actually, that has directed UK foreign policy, particularly in the realm of conflict and atrocity prevention. I was reading last week and over the weekend Peter Ricketts' book, Hard Choices. I don't know if you've had the chance to read it. And I, I was really struck by the fact that he's opened these reflections and is on and sort of his hopes for British foreign policy with the crisis of Libya. And as he tells it, that David Cameron's genuine desire to learn from Bosnia and Rwanda was forefront in that decision-making. But the disaster, of course, comes from the fact that the UK had no policy on how to learn from what happened in Bosnia and Rwanda. It had no policy on atrocity prevention. It had no developed understanding within the FCO of what implementing its responsibility to protect logistically meant, whether in a military policy, in political policy, or in a humanitarian policy towards Libya. And we see this sort of story of, you can disagree with the extent to which individual leaders genuinely felt moved by the desire to prevent atrocities or moved for other reasons. But that absence of a framework of thinking about how can we prevent future atrocities and what are the populations at risk is what made the policy towards Syria so haphazard. You know, it was certainly what hampered, to put it mildly, UK policy towards Bosnia. It was what was found by the International Development Committee and the Foreign Affairs Committee to be lacking in UK approach to Myanmar. We're seeing it now in criticisms about the UK approach to Xinjiang. So rather than it being about how does the UK decide where to respond, I think the UK has to have a means of viewing crises and decision-making from the perspective of how to reduce the likelihood of atrocity crimes. Because at the moment, it is nobody's clear job to do that. You know, I think there is a single desk officer. At times, there have been a focal point for the responsibility to protect, although within the moving architecture of the FCO DFID merger, we're not quite sure what that looks like now. And so that's, I think, what needs to be prioritised, is moving towards consistency rather than selectivity. And that doesn't mean doing the same thing in each case at all. It means having a consistent way of thinking from a kind of risk perspective and going from there. Brilliant. I think that almost answers my next question, but just in case, I would like to see if you wanted to add a bit more. Uh, and I think it might be a, a skeptical note to end on, but you've mentioned that the review does promise a lot when it comes to upholding human rights across the globe. However, the goals put forward are, and the issues tackled are not necessarily new items on the UK agenda. And I was wondering uh, what developments in the field of atrocity prevention would make the current British commitments more credible on paper for the experts on the ground, such as yourself? Yeah, I mean, this is kind of my golden question in that I have a long wish list. And of course, that's the role of civil society and advocates. I think the first thing I suppose to say is that integrating a better understanding of atrocity prevention doesn't necessarily require an enormous uplift of resources. Because at the moment, while there is always more that states like the UK can do on the ground in terms of humanitarian response, that's not what I and my colleagues 
are asking for. There are other colleagues that will and we support them. But what we're looking at is that analytical difference of recognising the knowledge of where these atrocities come from, what the motivations are, you know, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation of understanding who is perpetrating and with what intent, and then understanding what levers the UK and its allies have to influence those networks is actually a challenge of monitoring, analysis and communication. Sometimes there may be all sorts of policy responses that are made. And so you also need to have a playbook. And in order to kind of provide or create those capabilities, you don't need to transform the FCDO, nor do you need to massively over-resource. But you do need an analysis unit. You need to have some kind of skill set that is situated within the existing monitoring systems in government, but that are able to respond to those early warnings that you see in, in all sorts of cases around the world flare at certain points when those risks of atrocities, identity-based violence increase. And so that means you need to situate some of those systems in embassy. You also have to have the staff in the embassy that are then trained to use those systems. And you also need to have some kind of policy that guides both embassy and Whitehall on what you do when those thresholds have been met. It's not a playbook in the sense of when X happens, Y immediately follows. But it's rather having an idea about what the UK is and is not willing to do, who needs to be informed at what stage of the crisis, and where are those crimes coming from. And I think, you know, that's one of the stories, to return to the book for a minute, that I really hope comes out of Architectures of Violence, because while it is first and foremost about what happened in former Yugoslavia. There are so many reasons why that story is such an important allegory, because still there is this prevailing sense that atrocities come out of war or they come out of instability. And it depends on kind of what framework you look. But was former Yugoslavia in the 80s a country of instability? It was certainly a country in crisis, but it didn't fit how foreign policy experts understood where violence, both armed conflict and atrocities, come from. And I think that that, like, that is what, such an important lesson. We know from Pathways for Peace, from the UN World Bank report, that increasingly we're seeing armed conflict and atrocities emerge in middle-income countries, you know, upending this belief or assumption we had around development and stability. And so I think that it's so important to have a means of keeping a track on those indicators that don't always look like the warnings of genocide that come before, but are still possible to track, to register and to respond to way before the point of acute violence manifests. And so that's, I think, the kind of mindset that the government is already moving to on other global challenges, this prevention-first way of thinking that, you know, we're getting there on climate change. Now, far too late, we're going to get there on pandemics. But the next one is, is, is transforming our understanding of armed violence and atrocity crimes, that you can prevent these things, but it requires a prevention first rather than a firefighting mindset. 
Thank you so much, Kate. I think that really, really speaks to me also as to when the book really focuses on what identity-based violence looks like before it looks like war, before it looks like conflict. And I think even if it is a long wish list, it's definitely thought through and worthy. So I'm glad we were able to share that with our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us once again. And I look forward to having you again. Thank you so much for having me. It was great to speak to you. Well, that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. Hope you enjoyed those interviews. Before we go, though, I am back here in the media studio with my colleague Mariana, and I thought, Mariana, we could just have a chat about the new issue of The World Today magazine, which has been published this week. That's true. It's um, it's very exciting because it's the first issue under the new editor, Roxanne. Yes, welcome, Roxanne. And uh, the cover story looks at the 100 years of the Chinese Communist Party, and it has two accompanying articles, one on gender imbalance within the party and the other one on data surveillance. So it's Mm -hmm. a very packed cover story. The issue is also a bit of uh, travel around the world in in that it covers art restitution in Africa. It covers the uh, Tokyo Olympics. Uh, It talks about aid cuts in the UK. So I feel like there's something for everyone's taste in the newest issue. And uh, it's available now online, free to access indeed, for the next two months. So just hop on over to chathamhouse.org. There's a link also in the show notes to this episode. So that is finally it for this episode. All that remains for me to say is thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed what you've heard, then please subscribe and leave us a review on whichever app you're using to listen to this podcast and tell your friends, share us on social media. We would uh, greatly appreciate all of it. We are complete narcissists and we need to be told that we're doing an okay job. And if we're not, and if there are topics that you think we should be covering, then equally, we would love to hear from you either on Twitter or you can just email us at multimedia at Chatham House and uh, any comments are greatly welcome we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode for you in the meantime i'm ben horton and i'm an interviewer and you've been listening to undercurrents